Every day I walked down the streets, I just constantly looking and felt like I was followed and felt like everyone looked suspicious at the time. Hello, On Assignment listeners. We've been away for a few weeks, but now we're back with another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of great journalism. I'm your host, Abby Wright, here with my co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How is your semester going? It's good. It's good. We're at that part of the semester where everybody's kicking into high gear, so they're actually working really hard, and so I am too. So today, we are going to bring you a conversation with an intrepid young filmmaker behind the documentary sensation, I can say, uh, Hooligan Sparrow. It's a guerrilla documentary by Nanfu Wang that follows a Chinese dissident named Yi Haiyan. And if I mispronounce both of those, I'm sorry. Um, This film was incredible. It starts with a protest over a child rape case in the province of Hainan, where these young schoolgirls were taken away by their principal to a hotel. The whole thing is kind of unbelievable. And um, this protest ends up going viral and upends Haiyan's life. And her nickname in China... And the English translation for it is Hooligan Sparrow. That's where the title comes from. And she's pretty well known already before the Nanfu starts to follow her because she was known for her advocacy work on behalf of sex workers in China. She's quite outspoken and outrageous. She actually went to work in a brothel for free so that she could advocate for better protection for the women. Wow. So this is Nanfu's debut feature film, if you can believe it, premiered at Sundance last year. Amazing. And she has already another documentary out. She's prolific. It premiered at South by Southwest in March. One of the things about this film that really struck me, Lisa, I don't know about you, was all the use of undercover shooting um, that Nanfu did wearing special glasses with a hidden camera um, that were were then discovered Mm -hmm. by security agents. But um, really creative use of undercover filming. It's a very... um, unsparing look at the cost of activism. You really get to see, especially in China, you get to see, you know, it's very bleak for Hooligan Sparrow in parts. Uh, and there's there's just no hiding it. Yeah, it pulls back the curtain on a part of China that I didn't know that much about. I mean, I was familiar with Ai Weiwei um, and the work that he's done to draw attention to different issues. But um, yeah, the access was remarkable. Okay, before we give away the entire film, yeah. watch the film, Hooligan Sparrow. It's, you can see it on Netflix. And we'll talk about her new film, I Am Another You, later in the show. So without further ado, here is Nan Fui Wang in conversation with Professor Betsy West at a Film Friday screening of her film, Hooligan Sparrow. And this is an edited version of the conversation. So welcome to uh, Nanfu Yang. That's just an amazing accomplishment. Thank you. Um, just, just a little bit of background. Um, you grew up in rural China. You came to the United States uh, and attended college here and, mm-hmm. and went to the documentary program, at, uh, studied in the documentary program at NYU. Right. And um, this was your first feature? Yeah. <laughs> And you've got another one out that just debuted at uh, South by Southwest. 
Um, let's talk. Let's talk, though. Uh, there's so much to talk about how you made this film, and uh, you know, uh, uh, the courage that it took for you and the, the people that you were filming. But uh, to bring us up to date. What's happened with Sparrow, and what's been the reaction to this film? So uh, Sparrow, she um, recently, in February this year, experienced another eviction. In 2015, she moved out of the village because mm -hmm. there was nothing that she could do there. Um, she couldn't make a living. Um, there was just very little resources. So she moved to Beijing, and she lived there for less than a year. And the local police would visit her every day, and eventually they evicted her. But a few weeks before her eviction, she had told me what was going on, that the police would visit every day and tell her to leave. Um, and at the time, the daughter was suspended from school, too. As you could see from the film, that she was suspended from school multiple times. And even during the few times she moved to a new city, and she would try to find a new school for the daughter, but the school um, at sometimes the principal would check her name and tell Sparrow, sorry, we cannot accept this student, and you know the reason better than we do. So when she told me that, I, her daughter's education has always been something that I really, I was really concerned about. And um, in February, in January, I reached out to people here in the US, uh, people I asked if anybody knows any uh, legal service or immigration service. So eventually, I was able to get her daughter out. So she's now in the US attending high school. And she's a 17-year-old. Um, but because of the lack of education during the past, now she's a freshman in the high school. And the school um, gave her full financial aid. And she will be able to attend the next four years until she, go she goes to college. But Sparrow couldn't leave um, because her passport was taken away by the government. So there is no way to get her out of the country. Yeah. And the uh, human rights lawyer who was detained, is she still in prison or has she been released? Yeah, um, she was arrested in July 2014. And for more than a year, there was no trial, no, no formal charge until February 2014. 15, she was formally charged with subverting the government, along with her husband, who also received the same charge. And um, for over, the, over a year or two, the international communities organizations had campaigned for her release. And eventually, in August 2016, um, the American Bar Association awarded uh, lawyer Wang Yu the Human Rights Award. And the day before the award ceremony, even though that she couldn't come, but there would be a ceremony. And the Chinese government released um, a video um, which lawyer Wang Yu appeared on camera and admitted that she was guilty. And she confessed what she did and that she had ties with um, foreign, you know, foreign forces. And she also said that I refuse any help from the international community or governments. And if anybody, any organization tried to help me, um, and if the American Bar Association insisted on giving me this award, which I reject, 
then it's a violation of my human rights. And the video was a few minutes long, but everybody who knows her could tell that it wasn't herself talking. And we believe that she was forced to make that confession. And along that videotape, the government also said that they released her. Um, but ever since then, nobody was able to contact her, not even her family or her lawyer, and no one knows where she is. So we believe that if she's not in the prison right now, but she's um, secretly held somewhere. Yeah. And this film, the reaction to it in China? Um, the very first reaction was um, when the film premiered at the Sundance in, and there was a government uh, TV report, a very short news segment where the anchor said uh, somebody had made a film on the Hainan rape case mm -hmm. and the film is going to premiere at the Sundance Film Festival and let's take a look at what is Sundance Film Festival. So they pulled out some photos of people standing in the snow looking miserable and they said, well, Sonas Film Festival is a festival for independent filmmakers who have no budget, and the films are always like unknown. And so, and then they said, let's try to take a look at what the film is, and they searched online. But that was really early, and that was part of our strategy. We didn't put, put poster right. or trailer or anything. Right. And they were like, there was no poster, no trailer, no, no information about this filmmaker. Of course, it's a terrible film. And then that was at the very early on. And then gradually, as there were more people who watched the film and wrote reviews in Chinese and um, even some media reported it, and immediately the reviews were taken out. There was a Chinese version of IMDb website and people, um, some people you know, um, set up a page and then the page was taken down. And the, everything related to the film, um, the information was deleted and then eventually when the film was um, shortlisted for the Oscar, and that's when they reacted really strongly. Um, I think they were pretty freaked out that the news would grow, and so they went to my family and um, the, the same national security agents. They warned my family um, that to tell me not to take any interviews in the U.S., not to say anything negative about China, and in some of the interviews I had mentioned that they would harass my family. So they specifically told my family to tell me uh, not to mention that they had to come. And they also went to visit Sparrow and said the same thing, warned her to not say anything. Yeah. Are you worried about your family? Um, yes, because all my family is still in China. But at the same time, I observed that what the government tend to do uh, maybe I could be wrong, but so far, if the person, um, myself or other people, activists are outside of China, uh, unless that I'm trying to do something in China, then they would intimidate my family. But otherwise, they tend to just block the information and not let anything go back to China. Yeah. So talk about how this film came about. I mean, how, how, did, how did it all happen? You were here in New York when you got the idea? Yeah, I was a student at the time. Um, I, it was six months before my graduation, um, and it was the summer, and I thought about going back to China to make a film. I didn't know a film, but I thought I was going back to China during the summer to do something. 
And I thought about many ideas, which I, some of them I always, since the day I chose to start a documentary, I've been wanting to do it. And then this project, at first I didn't plan to do this. I was thinking that I wanted to make a film about sex workers, and especially the people who um, were from the rural areas and got paid very little, $2 each se uh, sex service. So I contacted Ye Haiyan, hoping that she could put me in touch with those people because her access. Um, and then when I returned to China and I met her for the first time, and the whole story changed as she was going to the protest. And you went in, you, you're a Chinese citizen. So you yeah. went in not as a journalist, but no. as a citizen with yeah. your camera by yourself? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, um, before I came to the US, I had not studied documentary or media or anything. I had no background. So that was the first time me um, going back to China and started filming. And I had assumed that it would be okay to film in public because that's what it's supposed to be. And I was very naive. I had not, prior to that, my life has never been involved with any activism or politics or I did not know any activism in, in life. And I had never, let alone participating in one, but never saw a protest in China. So I had no idea what I was going into and what I needed to be prepared for. So the whole thing um, started surprised me um, as I was going to the protest. And every day, um, as it developed, it became more and more shocking to me. Did you bring the undercover equipment no. with you, the no. glass? How did you d do all of that? Yeah, so I went um, with tripod, of, small DSLR, the equipment that I had that I could check out from the school. And the first day when I met Sparrow, she decided to go to the protest and I volunteered to go. And they were surprised. They asked me, are you sure you wanted to go? Do you know what the risks are? And, and I said, yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And they also told me, if you go with us, you cannot take your tripod. You cannot take your suitcase because um, you have to pretend that you are just ordinary person. Any, yeah, any suspicion that you are a journalist or a filmmaker could bring more attention to us. So I went without tripod, and as soon as the protest was over, I knew that even the small DSLR was pretty um, obvious. People started questioning me, and then after that, um, as I witnessed something that I couldn't film um, because the secret police were there following us and I saw one of, our, one of the activists were beaten by the secret police and I couldn't film anything. And that was when I went back and I felt pretty desperate. Just like I needed to find an, another way. So I started researching um, what hidden cameras are available and there were lot, lots of kinds so there is a Chinese version of like a eBay called Taobao and you can buy it. Usually they wouldn't list as like hidden camera, but like if you search and then be a little bit smart, then you will find it. And then there are many like watch shape, pen shape, button shape, um, all kinds. But because this is the summer, so 
uh, it was really challenging because I couldn't wear a lot of clothes. I was wearing dress or shorts every day, and there is no way to hide those things. Mm -hmm. And some of the clothes doesn't have buttons, so if there is a button, it looked pretty obvious. And the watch, I feel like there is no way I can always walk like this. <laughs> so, so eventually I chose the, the glasses and thought, this is the most natural way. It's the eye level, and I can wear them all the time. But then when, when the glasses came, it was like black, uh, really thick, and just like old people, probably like no girl would ever wear that kind of glasses. So yeah, so not, not so far, not so long after uh, they were discovered, yeah. But he didn't find the, the memory card. Yeah. Um, that was tricky because he was in the apartment, in Spiro's apartment, and then we had several activists there and two police officers. And when he grabbed my glasses, all the activists, they, because from the very early on, they decided to protect me always, and that was the case. So when he grabbed the glasses, the activist, lawyer Wang Yu and Sparrow, which Sparrow is especially, she was very aggressive. She, she wasn't afraid. So they argued with the officer, kind of like, like fought with him to, to get it back. And they were like, she's just a girl. Why are you doing this to her? And they all kind of like attacked him. And then eventually they were able to get, like before he found it, to, to get them back. So weren't you terrified <laughs> lots of the time? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, um, and I think terrified for sure every day. And uh, I felt like I, I was traumatized when I was filming. Um, it was like so paranoid. Every day I walked down the streets, whether I was with them or with, without them. <laughs> I just constantly looking and felt like I was followed and felt like everyone looked suspicious at the time. But that was that kind of paranoia was always there. Yeah. How much can you say about how you got the footage out? Well, it's not too difficult because um, there were a lot of people coming to the U.S. and friends of friends of friends who came as tourists, as students and they are not related to politics, so um, they are so ordinary, so they wouldn't be searched, and I had multiple people during multiple trips, and that they took um, one at a time for me, yeah. So can you go back to China now? I don't know. <laughs> I think I, I always ask myself and also discuss this with friends and just like, do you think it's okay or talk to lawyers or talk to activists, but nobody's sure because um, it's so hard to pre predict and they don't have a list on the internet. You could check your name whether you are on the list or not. <laughs> so the only way would be um, try to go back and see what would happen. Would I be stopped at the airport? Would I be, I don't know. So I still trying to assess the risks and the consequences, and it's hard to gauge, yeah. Are you, are you a US citizen now, or do you have any, what, you have visa here? Yeah, I have a green card, but I'm not a citizen, yeah. How hard was it to put this story together after you gathered, how long were you there, what, three months or something? Mm -hmm. You were there, you were in China three months. Yeah. How, how hard was it to put the story together? Um, I think the, the challenges of putting the story together are probably like similar to any other filmmaker who, are, like, who is making documentary. For me, um, uh, 
the editing um, wasn't wasn't too hard, uh, I feel, because I was editing them myself and I was so familiar with everything that happened. I didn't need to review the footage in order to, like people spend months or to just watch it. And I, they were all my life experience. So it was so memorable. I remember each single detail if I could find, um, if I want, a scene, something happened, I know which day and where. And um, so that part was uh, pretty easy and I was very obsessed and passionate about editing. So I spent like months just like putting it together. And I think what was the most challenging and took the longest time was uh, fundraising. Because up until that point, when I had a rough cut, there was still no funding, no support. and. And I realized um, for the first time that filmmaking is not only making art, it's also part of the business. <laughs> and it's so uh, funny that the second half of it is like how to get, how to get it seen by people. Even though that you have a great story, which a lot of people who saw it at the time told me, well, this is amazing, this is like unbelievable. But then like, still, there's no way, no channel, no guarantee that eventually the film would be seen by people. So I think, and at the time I graduated already, and I had to uh, find jobs, and it was really challenging to find a job too. So I was working on two different jobs, and at the same time working on the film at night and during the weekends. And then I started applying for grants, and the film got rejected and rejected and rejected over the course of a year. Um, which wasn't a surprise. I felt like now looking back, if I were a founder and I looked at this proposal, that the, it was filmed, it was directed or produced, subtitled, translated, all by one person. This person had no resume, <laughs> never even made a short. Why would they trust this person? So uh, yeah, so eventually this took a year. Was there a turning point, one, one place, one person that uh, you know, gave you a break or someone who believed think, in you? I think it was a gradual. It was like a really build up gradually. Like you got rejected once and then you think what's wrong or how, and then it was a constantly revising the film and then re reapply and then uh, talk to one person, that person referred to another person, another person referred to another person. So eventually the right person was there and and then the eventually one of the funders saw the cut and then gave the grant for the first time and then it became known to others so yeah I mean I open it up to anyone who has questions in the audience I mean I while you're thinking of it was it hard to think about how to structure the film? I mean, you put yourself right there, front and yeah. center. I mean, you're yeah. you're the you're the very first person we see. Was yeah. that difficult to come to? Yeah, I think because when I was filming, I didn't think that I was going to be in the film, mm -hmm. and luckily, I had a a, a ha habit. Even when I wasn't filming for a project, I tend to film nonstop, and I especially like reflection and shadows and lights. Um, so I. I had a lot of footage that had my reflection in there. And I, since I was a student in, in New York, I um, often do video diary, because I, like, I used to write when I was in China, but here, uh, when I discovered 
the video language. I just like, I can use this to express myself. So I would do video diary. And when I was in China, it became especially necessary because I couldn't talk to my family, couldn't talk to friends, um, fearing that the, the phone would be monitored. So sometimes when I had strong emotions and really couldn't talk to anyone, I would set up a camera to talk to the camera. And the material was there. But when I came back and I realized I needed to be in the film and I um, couldn't do it for a long time because I hated my voice. I never liked my voice since I was a teenager. I never sing and I just like hated. Every time I went to the voiceover booth, I would break down and cry and just like, I can't hear my own <laughs> voice, my own accent. And just like, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. And it took me a long time to eventually accept the fact that I had to do it that way and to embrace that. And the, also the challenges, how much of myself is not too much, is not too little, and how, how much to say is not over-explaining and how much to say is not too sentimental. It just, and then there's like versions of versions of rewriting, revising. As we move into the Q&A section, just a heads up that the audio didn't quite pick up the questions very clearly. We're gonna give you the headlines so that it's easier to make out what they're saying. But first, Nanfu talks about her new film, I Am Another You, shot here in the US. So the second movie is an American story. Um, every year on my birthday, I had a tradition since I was in my 20s to um, buy a bus ticket or a train ticket the night before my birthday. And usually I would go to the train station, bus station and ask for what is the cheapest to a place I had never been before. And the first year I lived in New York, I went to Florida and I had no plans and just like meeting travelers along the way. And I met a young guy who uh, first I thought I was a traveler like myself and we started talking for hours and he seemed to be very articulate, smart. And gradually I realized that he was living on the street and which surprised me because um, he told me that he made that choice. And when I asked him why he made the choice, he told me that he was born and raised in Mormon family in Utah and he had experienced the repressive judgmental culture which he desperately wanted to find freedom. And he eventually found the freedom he told me on the street. And to me, the idea of freedom was always vague and something that I couldn't completely understand. But I could relate to what he talked about, the Utah Mormon culture. So I decided to follow him on the streets and to see what he meant by freedom and what is the limitation of it. And uh, he said, I, at first I suggested that I was going to do it for two days following him around. And he said, you couldn't you couldn't, real, you couldn't discover it for two days. You have to live this life to understand it. So eventually I sh decided, shipped my belongings back to New York and lived on the streets with him. And then um, I also went to his family to find out what the background, what the culture really produced this, uh, this guy. So the film would be shown in New York in June at a, uh, and then will have a theatrical release in New York um, in either September or October too. 
that the first couple of questions are about what the movie means for a Chinese audience. One audience member asked how much of what's exposed in the film is actually known to Chinese people both in and outside of China. Another one asks what it takes to reach a Chinese audience considering that it's blocked in China and how that impacted the editing process. It's a really good question. Before making this film, I had no idea um, what it was like. Everything that happened in the film surprised me. I did not know that the secret police uh, were walking on the streets following people. And I am pretty sure the people who saw us on the streets and even saw the confrontation wouldn't know who those people are. And um, I didn't know that the government could or would I, I mean, probably it was because I'm naive, but I feel like most people who are at my age or I know did not know either. So they would chuck down people from one, one province to another and they had such power to have different provinces, cities to act at the same time. And when I told the story to my family and my friends uh, in China, they didn't believe it. Uh, which really saddened me because I realized that the education, the brainwash education was so, so powerful. People believed that what they were taught for years, they refused to think. And even when I showed the film here or to, to some people, to some Chinese who studied overseas or who live here, they uh, denied it either. They denied it too. They would say, um, this is a too, um, I'm too political biased. A lot of people say that I'm influenced by the Western culture. And a lot of people would say, if they believe that there is some problem, they would say, well, which society doesn't have problems? Like China is just like any other country. And this is one argument. Lots of people would say that you are exposing Chinese, China's problems, but the many other countries are similar or even worse. And then the other argument a lot of people make is, yes, we do have problems, but you shouldn't expose it internationally. You shouldn't do it. We should solve it within our country so that we don't create a negative image. And that's like a very powerful propaganda since we were children that we were, we were taught that the country is like your mother. No matter the, the metaphor is, no matter how ugly your, mo your mother is, you don't criticize her. So, and that's what lots of people believe. For the reasons that I said, most of the Chinese people did not know these issues and refused to accept those issues. Like I, my hope is more Chinese would see it. And I realize no matter how international communities are trying to help, at least one day all the Chinese people could be aware of the situation and are conscious about it, then that's probably when the real change would happen. At first I thought the film has to be seen outside and then if it has enough exposure, eventually the words would travel back to China and people would be curious about what the film is about and would want to see it. And we made the film available to Chinese people if they want to find it. Um, and that's why a lot of Chinese people have seen it. Um, and also some bloggers 
um, movie reviewers had wrote up, written about it. They wrote long reviews and they published, and then they had huge followers who read about that. But usually, that wouldn't survive like more than a week. The article uh, before it was taken down. So. And the next few questions are about Nanfu's experience as a filmmaker. One Chinese student asked what motivated her to keep filming, even though it was, in Nanfu's words, a traumatizing experience. Another asked how the film process changed her view of activism, since she said she'd never been politically involved previously. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? I imagine it would have changed her. Yeah, how could it not? Very intense experience. I think uh, every day, I think a person's emotion is not like a single emotion. And there was a fear for sure, but at the same time, as I said, was shock, uh, was sadness and hopelessness. It was like so many, and also um, the, the activism inspiration, because I felt like I was living through a nightmare every night. I woke up being chased or being caught and just like freaked out. And then I would talk to them the next morning. It's like, oh my God, how did you live this kind of life? I, if I live one more month, I would go insane. And they were like, yeah, we've been like having nightmares for 10 years. Like all kinds of like this recurring dreams of being caught. And I think because of all those emotions were so complex and fear was not the most, was not the, the most important or the most dominant emotion. I think at the time my goal was really, I can't believe I lived in China for over 20 years, yet I didn't know this was hap happening. And most people still don't know. 99% of people I feel like they are living in a different world. So the number one goal at the time was just, I want, like I'm seeing this, I want other people to see it too. So how should I, document it on camera, how should I get as much as possible uh, on camera? And that's what I thought most, yeah. In China, the official narrative uh, usually would depict the activists as people who are too radical, people who have a mental illness, people who are just insane, who would go onto the streets and protest. And most people believe that in the image that they create most people, when they think about activists, they create, they have that image of insane people. And when I first met all of them, it struck me that, wow, they are not like that at all. They are not radical, they are intellectual, they are mothers and wives and all have their own family and joys and sadness, just like everybody else, yeah. Nanfu Yang, thank you so much for this courageous film and for bringing it here and talking to us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure, honor. Thank you to Nanfu Wang for speaking with our students here at Columbia. Yeah, she's pretty young. She's a fairly recent graduate from a journalism school, and I'm sure everybody was kind of imagining themselves in her position. It was great that she could come. Great. So now let's transition to recommendations. Lisa, have you seen or heard anything lately that you would recommend to our yeah. audience? Yes, I have, actually. Uh, our friend, your friend and mine, Jean Marie Condon of ABC News, longtime venerable producer there, 
And John and, al- and alumni of this esteemed oh, right. institution. I keep forgetting that. And uh, John Ridley, who's a celebrated uh, screenwriter, did Twelve Years a Slave, won an Academy Award for that, and uh, director, uh, producer. The two of them teamed up uh, to make a really intense and beautiful documentary called Let It Fall about the Los Angeles riots in 1992. And it really traces the 10 years prior to give the context and background uh, and then and then walks you through step by step with witnesses, everything that happened. It's, it aired recently on ABC News and um, they are thinking it may get a theatrical release. Wow, it aired on the network? Yeah, yeah. And it's going to have a theatrical release, and then I'm sure, hopefully, we can see it some streaming somewhere. I imagine, yeah. It's it's just beautiful. It's beautifully edited. Um, it's very journalistic and um, also emotional and heartfelt. Mm. It, it really hits all the right points. I cannot wait to see it. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for that. And speaking of John Ridley, I just happened to be watching a series that he also is involved with on Showtime last night, Gorilla. Have you seen it? I haven't. I've heard a lot about it, though. Smart, beautifully produced. Wow. And it stars Idris Elba. So, What can I say? Anything Must with Idris TV. Elba. Yeah. yeah. Um, my recommendation is a little bit different. Um, the Committee to Protect Journalists just released their annual Attacks on the Press, Um which is sort of a survey they do every year, taking a look at the press freedom landscape around the world, um, like an annual report of sorts. And um, I really recommend people go to www.cpj.org and check out some of the writing. Um, They have people like Rukmini Kalamaki from the New York Times, Alan Rusbridger, Christian Amanpour, um, all kinds of amazing reporters and thought leaders weighing in on the state of journalism everywhere. Needless to say, the United States is also featured this year, sort of reporting in the time of Trump. Yeah, it's got this incredible image on the front cover, which a lot of people saw during the campaign of somebody with their back to the camera wearing this T-shirt that says rope, period, tree, period, journalist, period, some assembly required, and was just such a... Chilling. Yeah, chilling image for everyone, not just journalists. Yeah, so check out CPJ. They're now more than ever, as we are saying around here, more than ever. Um, Really important, interesting work to familiarize yourself with. Okie dokie. So I would say, importantly, that, uh, you know, one of the reasons we're back in business is that uh, we are just opening up our submissions for the 2018 DuPont Columbia Awards uh, period, and we are hoping that uh, you will all out there, all our listeners, enter your best work, your best reporting for DuPont. Deadline July 1st. So you have some time. DuPont.org. Check it out. This episode was brought to you by the generous support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by Columbia Journalism School. It was produced today by J-School grad Hava Gurari, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. And today's sound engineer is our own DuPont fellow, Meg Dalton. And a big thank you to all of our DuPont fellows, Val Caval, Kim Flores, Meg, of course, and Millie Christie Dervo. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod, and you can find us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and share us with your friends. We'll be back for another episode of On Assignment in two weeks, featuring the people who brought you OJ Made in America. It's actually a mashup episode. Yeah, that'll be fun. Okay, until then, bye for now. Bye. Bye.